I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Clash. So on Monday, we attended a ticketed event that was a tour around a chocolate factory. And today, it's time to shine in the oasis. As this week's Steven Spielberg movie is from 2018, we're talking Ready Player One. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego. Like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. We'll have a winner at the end of the show, but which film will it be? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters. To be honest, I have kind of a neck thing. It's like a carpal tunnel deal, but with your neck, if that's even a thing. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. Did you swear at me when I was doing my intro? Is that because of Monday? No, I was just stretching. Hmm? It looked like sweary stretching. <laughs> Sweatching. <clears throat> right. Willy Wonka versus Ready Player One. My choices, because I'd only seen Ready Player One the once, and I hadn't seen Willy Wonka for years. And they basically have the same plot of children being handed ownership of multi-million pound companies by simply knowing a lot about pop culture or just not being a bit of a shit. <laughs> so I'd, I'd pass one of those tests. <laughs> Very quickly, if you haven't subscribed to us already, if you'd be kind enough to do so, that would be amazing. Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Also, you can leave us a rating and possibly even a review. And if you leave us a review, you might have it read out on the show by Chris Tilly, a.k.a. Chris Thrilly, which sounds a bit like this. This is from Mart271, who calls this my favourite podcast of all time. What? 
It's like a movie podcast hosted by the Three Musketeers. If the Three Musketeers comprised of Egon Spengler from Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. the Fonz, and Lieutenant Ripley meets a Northern Bridget Jones mashup. Oh my God. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Mart. Mm. And this one's for you. <laughs> so you're the Fonz in this. Uh, just because you wear a leather jacket doesn't make you the Fonz, Alex. <laughs> Matt Hancock could wear a leather jacket. It wouldn't make him the Fonz. It's an attitude. It's a state of mind. So just get on with it, Spengler. Uh, I, I know I'm in love. I don't have amazing. any problem with being Egon Spengler. I just, I thought maybe... He is tall. He is tall. I thought maybe I'd be the Fonz. But okay, cool. I'm, I'm down with that. Thank you very much. That was a great review. Is that a five-star review? I think so. No, it's a five-star review. That's the best review I've ever heard. <laughs> I hope it is, as it's the best podcast of all time. <laughs> Um, so tell me, how, how are you feeling right now? I feel, um, like I say, the, the flush of love, actually. Mm-hmm. I need to find this person. <laughs> Why do you make it weird? <laughs> creepy. So that creepy. Is, suddenly got sinister. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to be my friend? <sighs> yeah, just put on this Ripley costume. <laughs> so. Oh. Ripley costume with Bridget Jones pants. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be sensible, actually. I thought you were going to say sexy. <laughs> Don't do a shrug face like, well, maybe. It doesn't work on the show. And then I'm like looking at you going, well, maybe, maybe it would. Maybe that's sexy. All right, on Monday, Vicky behaved like an absolute wonka. It's the same joke again, which means today Chris is playing with himself in virtual reality. Chris, take us on a journey. James Halliday is the genius who created a virtual universe called the Oasis, where you can spend your days hiding behind unimaginative avatars (laughs) and doing things that are impossible in the real world, like playing Minecraft and visiting casinos. (laughs) But his dedication to pop culture rather than spending time with friends and family made Halliday miserable. And before his death, he decided everyone else should be miserable too. So created a game in which competitors had to be just as dedicated to the very same pop culture. Meaning that by knowing the pointless nonsense that made him sad, you win Halliday's company, the one that made him miserable. (laughs) Which I think makes this the most depressing Steven Spielberg movie since Munich. Ladies and gentlemen, for your consideration, Ready Player One. Wow. Fair enough. Hard. No, so, all true. <laughs> so I heard about this film way back in the day when the rights were purchased before the book was even published. Um, I then wrote a review of the book back in 2012, mm. and I liked it at the time, although I think the book reads quite differently now in sort of a post-Gamergate, post-Snyder-cut sort of world where the internet feels like a much uglier place. But I was super excited when Steven Spielberg was announced as the director in 2015. I was very ready for the movie in 2018, uh, which I saw at a press screening in advance of an interview I did with the author Ernest Klein, which I'll be quoting from here as he explains why quite a few changes happened from book to screen. So that's my story. Mm. How about you, Victoria? Never seen it. Um, the, the, for the very shallow reason that the length has always put me off. <laughs> Why is it two hours twenty five? We do movies that long all the time. Oh, I know, but it shouldn't be like it's meant to be a pop culture saccharine easy thing, and the length is like it obviously thinks it's something other than that, and that is enough to put me off. How busy are you? I'm really busy. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm really busy. You gotta watch two films a week. <laughs> you got a new car yet? <laughs> 
No. Alex? <laughs> uh, so I've seen it once. I saw it at a press screening ahead of hosting the uh, premiere in London's Leicester Square for this film. I remember enjoying it. I hadn't read Ernest Cline's book at the point of watching the movie, but I then did read it after the movie. And there are elements of the book that I prefer mm-hmm. to the movie. Um, but again, just going on what you said about the post-Gamergate situation, I did um, not know that he's already released a sequel in December last just year. Yeah, it just happened. Yeah, and apparently that's um, not, not, as, not as good. That's what I read, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in so much as it feels, uh, yeah, outdated now. Mm. Mm. But again, that's just uh, that's hearsay, because I shouldn't really review something that I haven't yet read. No, I will but- be reading it. Will you? I will. Yeah, I did enjoy the first one. I'm just interested to see where that story can go because it didn't. It felt like such a closed, no pun intended, book by the end of the first. Yeah, I guess both in the book and the film they did set up though that Halliday wasn't necessarily oh, dead. Yes. So I think that's going to play a big part of it. Mm. Okay, so um, as I said, Warner Brothers purchased the film rights a year before the book was published, and um, they asked Ernie Klein for a list of his dream directors, and he didn't even bother putting Steven Spielberg on that list (laughs) because he said it was so unrealistic. Um, He wrote the first script himself before Zach Penn did the rewrite, um, which made Klein happy because they'd become friends while making the Atari documentary Game Over. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's very good. Made by Zach Penn, Ernie Klein's in it, and it's about this disastrous uh, video game of E.T. Mm. that basically brought down Atari. And it's really interesting, and then all the games are supposedly got buried God, in a remember. landfill. What's, what? oh, that's a spoiler, but I can't remember because it's, it's, was it true or not? I think it was in the end. It was yeah, true. Yeah, right. it was true. So it's ironic that that brought them together because it was an E.T. video game. Um, but it was Zach Penn's script that got director Steven Spielberg interested in 2015. And uh, I heard Klein say that it was like a dream come true and felt unreal like being in the Matrix, which is interesting he chose that metaphor rather than the Oasis. I think it says a lot. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Was this? I can't remember if this is correct, but I think this was the movie that Steven Spielberg chose to do instead of Robopocalypse, which mm. was another book that I read. Which mm, I've read that one as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a weird one, that book, because it's, it's not bad at all, but it literally is World War Z, with robots yeah. to the point that it is like an account of a robot war told from different perspectives and you were like okay well clearly Steven Spielberg's seen something in it but then he put it on the back burner well the thing with Spielberg is at any one time he always has about five projects lined up and if so that he's got one good to go when he feels ready for it and so there's the, the list is so long of films that he's developed and didn't actually make mm. um, but he, he got together with Klein and Penn and they made changes and revisions based on what would work in the film um, he he apparently came with a dogged um, copy of the book where he had 50 post-it notes of things he wanted back in the script that had been taken out from the adaptation but it also based on what IP was available to them and also what Spielberg was comfortable doing so this is what um, Klein told me about these changes. He said, in the novel, I can have someone stand at a Pac-Man game and play a perfect game for a couple of hours and it doesn't stop it dead. Whereas if you did that in a movie, it would stop the movie dead. So we wanted to change the challenges, at least the first two, in a way that would capture the spirit of the challenge in the novel, but be more cinematic and more visually engaging. Um, but some things change because of the rights. So um, they Blade Runner plays a big part in the book. But Blade Runner sequel was being made at the time and came out at the same time. And so obviously, mm. uh, is it Sony? 
Sony, yeah. Sony didn't want Blade Runner being in this, so they lost that. And War Games was a big one in the book. Um, that was unavailable, but also, as he said, that's something that works on the page, but it's a dialogue-driven movie and it just didn't really work visually for this film. Um, so Spielberg also, he said he was uncomfortable using f- his own films in this film, even though he does. Yeah, he um, had to be convinced to put the DeLorean in, wasn't yeah. it? Wasn't his rule on the DeLorean front that was like Ernest Klein said to him, but you only produced that movie. And he's like, yeah, all right, we can have that in. At, at Comic-Con, he acknowledged that being he was a key influence on the book. He had to leave some of his own work in the movie, mm. um, but he didn't want much of it. He was worried about being accused of vanity. Whereas I think it, well, I think that's counterproductive. I feel like he should have used more of his own stuff. But wasn't the other thing though that he was worried because the only previous time that he'd referenced his own work in a film yeah. was in a movie that, again, I haven't seen this for years, but I have very fond memories. It's a movie I watched about ten times as a kid, nineteen forty-one. Which, granted, like now in hindsight taking the piss out of Jaws with your opening, like one of the scariest openings to a film ever, and then doing that as a joke with a submarine seems ill-advised. But that's why another reason why he didn't want to put his own things in it. Yeah, exactly. So so Ultraman, War Games, Pac-Man, The Goonies, Monty Python, Blade Runner were out, The Shining, Iron Giant, Gundam, and most weirdly, Last Action Hero were in, <laughs> which ends up, you end up with quite a weird mix referencing stuff that Spielberg loved or th- Things that you think the kids of today love or deals that cynical corporations were able to do behind the scenes to sell toys and games. But wasn't Last Action Hero in there because Zach Penn wrote it? So yes. Ernest Klein actually went behind Zach Penn's back and um, and had that added in as a little surprise for him. It's just weird. Which seems that Zach Penn would go, trying to forget that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's it in terms of the background. Yeah. So let's talk about the movie. Uh, starting off with the Oasis. Um, so we start off in Columbus, Ohio, uh, 2045, and we're in the stacks, mm. which look like they've got that washed out colour that Vicky was such a fan of in Minority Report. <laughs> it was me. Oh, wait, I was the one who did not like it. I don't. Vicky really didn't like it. Oh, did you not like it either? Did I barely notice it? I can't remember. <laughs> you didn't like it. You both didn't like it. So he's gone, back, he's gone back to that well. But this star is... It's, this. It's already, I'm watching it now, I'm like, how dated does this look? Or did I just not pick up on it first time round? And did it look dated then? What is that? I don't understand the rules of VR. So there's a guy using VR to surf, but he actually has a surfboard that he stands on while he's doing VR mm. surfing, which seems... Pointless. Yeah, a little bit like you just you want the experience to be entirely virtual. You don't want to have to buy a prop to use <laughs> with your VR headset. But hasn't, you can't see, oh, yeah. hasn't Wade got his multi-directional treadmill so mm. that he's running? Isn't that the same as being on a surfboard? Yeah, I guess my problem is that the surfboard is balanced precariously on the edge of the stacks and mm. VR consistently, you watch people using VR and they're all over the shop, falling this way and that. So it looks unsafe. And this ties into something that we're going to hopefully talk about later, which is people are on the street using VR, walking along the pavement, which is just an insane thing to do and makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Well, we kick off with our voiceover from our hero, Wade Watts, um, giving a huge exposition dump. Um, He's talking about the syrup droughts, the Mm. bandwidth riots, his parents being dead, so he's living with his aunt. (laughs) Um, As Alex says, everyone's VRing in their apartments. But also with the voiceover, it doesn't get a pass from me. Who is he talking to? Because he's explaining the world like you don't know the world. So who is he talking to? So you you can do that a different way. You can do a voiceover if you have to. but you have to be clever. Why is it not an up-to-date voiceover? Like, you know, talk to a person like they know what the Oasis is, but find a smarter way of doing all that exposition. So straight, I was like, why is this happening? Yeah. 
Yeah. Have you either of you VR'd? Yeah, I have. You have? Yeah. Where did you do it? What did you do? Oh, it was called, it was like a sleep thing and it was... <laughs> no, why? Why are you laughing? VR you sleep can, thing. You can do anything. Uh, I want a nap. Uh, I want to go to VR to get away from the no, kids. No, it was like, oh, fuck. It was like a like sleep clinic thing. <laughs> Wait, no, listen. And you went into I the take VR. it back. Spielberg had the right idea. Surfing, <laughs> get a pass, pole dancing. You went I'm to a interested. sleep clinic. I'm interested. Vicky. Thank you. You went to this like magical sleep clinic place and you led in this hospital bed and then you were in the clinic and you put the headset on and then you went to all these different worlds. And obviously there's a bit where you're in the room and you have to be tied to a harness because like you say, you fall over everywhere. And so I was very rubbish at it because it was in this VR thing and the landscape changed and every, what you had to do was jump off a cliff, right? And obviously you're not really jumping off a cliff. And I couldn't do it because I was fucking terrified. <laughs> Every part of my body was like, do not jump off a cliff. It's obviously. amazing though, isn't it? When the, 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 the way it works, I did one recently and it was, it was uh, for Sky. Uh, Sky um, uh, have got a new VR thing where you can watch movies in VR in your own bespoke cinema. And I was sitting in the cinema and the cinema, had, I was on a balcony and just the ledge down to yeah. below, I was like, yeah, this is amazing, but. Terrifying, terrifying at the same time. I had to be pushed because I was holding up the rest of the group and the visuals wouldn't change until everyone was over this line. So this like unpaid volunteer actor was like, for fuck's sake, just push me in the small of my back and I went flying off a cliff and then it was obviously fine. So did you free fall then in the VR? For about a second, yeah. Okay. And then it, the landscape changes because obviously I think in your brain it would just be a bit much to, mm. I assume, that you would have some sort of mm. breakdown. Um, it, it was really good fun though. I do have the, the PS4 VR system for my PlayStation 4, which is great fun. Uh, but like a lot of things, I had it out for about six months and then I was like, all right, putting that away because it's just this massive piece of hardware sitting in the corner of your living room. But the mm. ghost train one was wow. really scary. That sounds brilliant. Really scary. Cool. Yeah. Have you done it? Uh, I did it pissed in a friend's kitchen about a year ago. I can't remember what I played. It was good. <laughs> it was good. It was good. But I, I just can't get over the self-consciousness. You know, I'm in the kitchen, there's like five people around and they're watching me. Yeah, stagger it's, around. Yeah, it's just, I, 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 can't, I can't relax into it. So in the Oasis, you can be anyone. You can be a different sex. You can be a different species. So our hero, Wade, his avatar, Parzival. It's a bit boring, isn't it? He's sort of this just an himself anime twink kind of. <laughs> yeah. It's, what would you be? I'd probably have Parzival. <laughs> I'd be like, I want to be good looking and I want great hair. So thank you. All right. Well, then Morton Harkett. Yes. There you go. We're yeah. doing 80s throwback. Sorted you. Um, so the Oasis is where people go to hang out and make friends and meet other people like H, who we learn is his best mate. Yeah. The film does a really good job of. At least, I was worried that it was going to be a completely sanitised version of VR in the future, which we all know 90% of people will be using for erotic pleasure. For certain. For sex. Yeah. It would be for, like that is, and they do sort of go, he does say in the narration, you can go in there if you want, and there's a motel on screen, mm. and you do see a woman, although, you know, pole dancing is not innately sexual, there's a woman pole dancing earlier, and like, as it goes on, there are characters, like there's a furry avatar with huge fake tiger breasts, and you're yeah. like, I just say this because I got obsessed with Second Life. Have you ever been on Second Life? No. Which is where you, it's basically like, like, uh, the Oasis, but just a really, really shit version. Um, and I went on it once because we were going to try, we were trying to get this documentary off the ground about, you know, people leading second lives, whether it's World of Warcraft, whether it's Second Life. So I set up an avatar and I went in and within about 30 seconds of being in there, the text appeared on the screen and it said, a ghost has approached you. 
uh, the ghost wants to give you a gift. Do you accept the gift? And I was like, was it their dick? Yes. <laughs> the, it literally went, the gift is porn. That's what the gift was. And then you sort of, you just wandered around and it was just a lot of people having sex. Yeah. Their avatars having sex. There was a case where a woman uh, successfully divorced her husband because she found photos on his hard drive of his avatar having sex with another avatar. And the judge was like, well, he's cheated on you. It's nice. He's had a wank. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> but I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, a lot of these uh, virtual worlds do sort of appeal to people who want to be a bit naughty. All right. Well, you, being you're a D&D kid, mm? would would this all have appealed to young Alex? Not the porn stuff. I'm talking about this. The stuff that Wade does. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think it would. I mean, don't get me wrong. I just I'm I'm saying I think it's good that it does slightly at least reference that. But I think the Oasis is amazing. If yeah. something like this existed, I would be in there. It's incredible. Yeah. So inside, there's death matches. There's artifact hunts. There's coins you get to help you level up. Uh, if you die in the Oasis, you lose everything. Your clothes, your weapons, your money. But you don't actually die. It's not. We've not got a Matrix thing going on here. Um, and he also tells us about the aforementioned James Halliday, who created the Oasis, and he's dead. But before he died, people loved him. He was a god. He's very Steve Jobs, isn't he? Mm. Um, uh, but he died, and he left behind something that changed everything. It's an Easter egg, an object hidden in the game that gives special powers to whoever finds it. The finder inherits his stake in gregarious games and total control of the Oasis. And to find it, there's three keys, three hidden challenges requiring worthy traits to get you through hidden gates. But in five years, no one has found even one key. Uh, You have to know what he knows. To, to be worthy and there's an evil corporation see there's so much exposition there's an evil corporation called IOI and they're putting everything into winning um, the contest um, which is the first of many mixed messages in this film I think it's anti-corporate story that worships at the altar of characters owned by large corporations <laughs> yeah isn't it IOI yes. is evil in For this film reason. that's made by Warner Brothers and it's just <laughs> it's um, it's, I think it's all over the place the message of this film but yeah Nolan Sorrento is the villain played by Men- Men- Ben Mendelsohn oh love him um, and he's he- unbelievably bad in this film <laughs> Ben Mendelsohn is never ben bad. Ben Mendelsohn is amazing <laughs> is but we've done two one. films now where he is bad what's the other one Robin Hood Oh, I can't even remember him in that. He looks like a Nazi. <laughs> He's got a big coat. Oh, coat-tall. the, the Taron Egerton one. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, I I just, in this, he seems like a slightly wackier John Taggart from Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, I, know. I just think he, he tries so hard to deliver lines in like a baddie way and it's just bad. But I think he's meant to be like not, he's meant to be a bit rubbish, like a bit yeah. of, like the, the bit that makes me think, Actually, his performance is exactly what he's going for, is when he's trying to convince Parseval that he's down with the kids, that he yeah. knows all the John yeah, Hughes references. Yeah. And he's like, you know, dude, and all that. And you're yeah. like, perfect. And I think he's just, that's that's his character. I don't think he's meant to be that villainous. Okay. I think he looks embarrassed throughout the whole film. Yeah. I think he looks embarrassed to be there and be embarrassed to say the things he's saying. In your scene, he's supposed to look embarrassed, but I, yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure his heart was in this one. But he's leading the efforts uh, for IOI through his army of sixers um, in what he calls a war for control of the future. So it's a lot to take in there, but it's all relatively straightforward, actually. Um, I didn't have a problem with it. I just found it quite hard to look at. Um, I, I don't know. I don't because I don't play, play these games that seem to have influenced the visuals in this. Mm. I'm really not used to those visuals. This Fortnite kind of reality that it just looked like a bad, badly rendered video game to me when they were in the Oasis. Am I am I on my own here? 
I was struggling. I thought the visuals were amazing. Okay. But mm. I thought nothing else about the film was amazing. And I needed more. Like, I don't want to sound like an old lady, but what happened to telling me a fucking story? <laughs> so when I was in the Oasis, like the race is a good example. It's cool. Like, it's really good. It's better than cool. It's absolutely incredible. It is incredible. But then the story point is go backwards. And that is fucking stupid. Yeah. Because if it was like, oh, this race has been a thing for five months, mm. I would buy that no one had tried to go backwards <laughs> for five years. Mm. No. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I, part of me hates the fact that the film has this effect on me because, I, I, again, you are. I, I do agree. There are huge, huge plot holes in this. A, a massive, massive lack of information. Like I'm still not sure what Artemis's quest is and what the rebellion is all about. Yeah. Uh, I'm a bit puzzled by what she is fighting. And also, for. she is the best at that. And she gives it up so easily so that her boyfriend mm. can do it. Yeah. The problem is that when like someone is like, when you're watching the bike from Akira race the fucking DeLorean, I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever that's, seen. That's the point. That's a really interesting point because isn't it the thing, when we talk, we all like that pop culture, right? Mm. And Chris Tilly, you're a massive Back to the Future fan mm. and I'm a massive Ghostbusters fan and you're a massive Jaws fan, right? Mm. But when we talk about those things between ourselves and we do that little pop culture trade-off and this bit and this bit and whatever, whatever, we do then always get to something else. Like you, Chris, you love Back to the Future, but you, you'll talk about like cinema trips with your family and that is like a real memory and a real emotion. And you, Alex, will talk about your mum letting you watch films you shouldn't have watched and you're like testing the limits of what you can get away with. <laughs> And I love Ghostbusters because it's like, oh, ghosts might be real and there's like more out there in the world. And you very quickly get to the point of that nostalgia, which isn't just nostalgia for the sake of it, because it's empty without the the grounding of like, why does Parcival love this stuff as much as he does? Presumably he wants to escape his shitty life, mm -hmm. but there isn't maybe enough of it. Like, why does he love... Back to the Future as much as he does. No reason. Like, it's empty. Which is what I, th I think I kind of agree with you. I think my thing is the fact that because there, are, I think there's about 120 different pop culture references in this film. And I, I think each of them, as the viewer, even though it doesn't make sense for Parsifal and you never find out his interest in them, as the viewer, you're immediately like, oh, I remember watching Akira for the first time. That was amazing. And there's yeah. the bike from that. So it does have an effect on you, the viewer. It just, within the context of the, in inverted commas, story, it doesn't really work. And I also yeah. feel like you need to have everything if you're going to tell this story. And they've obviously only got a handful of those IPs. Mm. So it, I, I, there's not enough of it for me. They're missing classics and they're just shoehorning in other stuff, you know. Um, let's talk about the first challenge, though. Um, in the book, the first challenge required contestants to play a large scale version of the Dungeons and Dragons module Tomb of Horrors. What does that mean, Alex? Uh, I've not played that module. Oh, <laughs> Isn't it, do you think... It, is he lying about this Dungeons and Dragons? I thing? don't know. So Dungeons and Dragons is a much easier way of saying it. I, the, the mechanic, the mechanic I played was called Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which was a Games Workshop publication, which was basically Dungeons and Dragons. But when you say to people, "Yeah, I, you can't say I play Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay," because then you they go, "What the fuck is that?" Because no one really knows it. So I use Dungeons and Dragons as a shorthand. As shorthand. Okay, sorry, I wish I hadn't asked. Um, <laughs> there you go. Once that part of the challenge is beaten, they must then play joust. Um, in the film, the challenge is a race that no one has been able to finish. Um, I asked Klein about this change. He 
he called it Super Mario 2045 and said, Wade has a flying DeLorean in the book, but he never really uses it except to go to a club. So this gives us a chance to show everybody having different vehicles and using them in a way that's connected to the challenge. That's my favourite change from the book because I feel that it captures the spirit of the video game challenges, but it's cinematic. So as we said, um, Wade slash Parzival has a DeLorean. We meet Artemis um, on her Akira motorcycle and... H is in the Bigfoot truck. The third time we've seen that truck on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, it was only a couple of weeks ago I mentioned it. It's um, so the Roadhouse. Yes. Oh, is it in uh, Tango and Cash? Yes. yes. Ah. <laughs> we love the Bigfoot truck on this <laughs> I'm podcast. Sure, I'm sure it's at the end of Police Academy 2 or 3 as well, which we have yet to We've yet to get to. Uh, but as you said, the race, there's we see a lot of IP, we a lot of characters. Um, Spielberg does uh, credit Jurassic Park here because we get the dinosaur. We've got King Kong. We've got the 66 Batmobile, which I was excited to see. Um, so you were a fan of the race. I love That's, the race. Yeah. I think it's incredible. I got goosebumps watching it again. Even I mean, when I saw it at the cinema, it was better, but mm. it still it still stands up. It's so beautiful. I felt watching it in the, the, the computer generated vehicles. It felt like it had this weightlessness that meant I couldn't really. It didn't feel real to me in a way that I couldn't get my head around it properly. Yeah. I mean, when I say I love it, yes, of course. We talked about this. We did it on Fast and Furious. Things done for real are much, 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 much better. There was no way of doing this for real. I mean, the Akira bike was already an animation in Akira. Mm. So, you know, within the confines of this being CGI, this is a spectacular but CGI I, I guess, race. I guess there is a way, and these people have done it before, of combining um, live action with animation and CG that might have made it, if they grounded it in a more realistic setting. But it's... It's, it's, but it's in the Oasis, so it's meant to be digital. Sure, well. and I just, I just found the Oasis ugly to look at. The, the Oasis didn't have to look like that. That's how they've decided the Oasis should look. Mm. And I, as I say, I've just found it hard to look at. But that is my problem. Mm. Um, so Wade saves Artemis from Kong, and then he has to go to the Halliday Journals to try and figure this all out. And as um, Vicky said, um, he realises he's just got to go backwards. Um, the exact quote is why can't we go backwards for once backwards really fast fast as we can really put the pedal to the metal Bill and Ted did it and that is the clue that he needed to go backwards and win the race and hear a bit of the Back to the Future music I do love the journals I like that idea that I love the way that the journals looked and then that little nitpicky part of me was like they're just screens so unless there's a cue why are they being walked to a different screen to see the memory? Because presumably it's a bank of screens and the curator can go, this screen that's right in front of you, I'll put this memory on. But they walk <laughs> through a hall. And I get it for the film because it looks brilliant. But in reality, this reality, you just stand there and watch it. But it's meant to look brilliant in the Oasis as well. Yeah. It does look more fun if you have to walk down a corridor. There are so many things in the Oasis that don't work in terms of the logic of why you would do that. When they go to the super club, there is a fucking traffic jam of spaceships oh, yeah. outside the super club. <laughs> who is in that traffic jam? Who is Who goes into VR to sit in a traffic jam? Probably it's, Vicky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She went to sleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so again, it's just like, it just makes it look cool. Yeah, okay. Um, we learn that Sorrento's plan is to fill uh, the Oasis up with adverts. Mm. Right. We can sell 80% of a person's screen <laughs> without inducing a seizure. <laughs> <laughs> and we meet his henchman, Irock, played oh, by uh, TJ, TJ <laughs> Miller. Mm. The minute he opened his mouth, which I know he's done on purpose, the joke, like you're not expecting that voice to come out of that beast. I was like, brilliant, because mm. this is genuinely funny. Yep. More of him, please. I 
think there's a problem there, though. Uh, I like the fact he's funny, agreed, but I feel like he should be more dangerous. Yeah. He feels like he's this representation of these trolls, of these, you know, gamergators or whoever. And I think he should be a genuine threat and he never seems to be like that. He seems quite cuddly almost. And I feel like um, to, f- if he's going to be um, Sorrento's henchman, I think he should be dangerous. I mean, I think Sorrento provides that danger because... IROC is just a gamer and he is meant to be funny and Sorrento is the one who's causing real world casualties by bombing the stacks Mm. but I think what would have been nice is if at the end when he dies we'd have seen who IROC was being played by and it just Mm. being like some like seven year old kid Mm. yeah yeah we also learn more about Halliday find out that he went out with his partner um, Ogden Morrow's first wife on a single date Um, Kira is her gamer tag um, and he's removed every mention of her that's a quite a nice line, though, where he says uh, she wanted to go dancing, so we watched the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and so Kira is the rosebud at the centre of his story, and uh, just as Artemis becomes the rosebud at the centre of Wade's story. So they go to this dance club. They drop Blue Monday, best dance song of all time. Mm-hmm. Fact. Um, everyone's flying around to that one. They do some dance challenge. Saturday Night Fever comes up. That just feels like something... I, I, don't, I think if a different director had made this, if a younger director had made this, I don't think we'd have it's, a Saturday Night Fever yeah. scene with someone going old school yeah it's you know too, it just made me feel a bit sad for them as well like you the real world that you live in these characters you have to rehash what is actually for you really old stuff like saturday mm. night fever is not in your purview at no, all no it just made me feel a bit bad for them a bit cringe the sixes attack and um there's a mechus cube turns everything back in time how did you feel about some, something being called as a mechus cube alex <laughs> i mean did it make you feel a bit sick i just sort of <laughs> it felt a bit like labored did it not yeah just a tad it's fun it's uh, a nice little idea but i don't know it just felt i could i think when that happens I was just visualising Spielberg nudging Zemeckis going, eh? Look at that. <laughs> mate. Because yeah, we mate. do... do this we, is for you. We do cover the films of these directors like um, John Carpenter and Sam Raimi and Spielberg and Zemeckis who do have these in-jokes and share cameos and mentions and stuff. But I really feel like it should be more in the background. I feel like yeah. we should almost not be able to notice it unless you're a super That's, geek. Yeah, because then you'd feel proud that you'd spotted it yeah. and you'd feel a bit of ownership over it. Putting it front and centre, it feels a bit... Crap. <laughs> We get more of uh, the, uh, the potential sexual uh, nature of the Oasis now because he's got his got his haptic suit on, and uh, mm. Artemis grabs his crotch, and he can sense that. And she says, uh, "You you don't love me. You love the idea of me. This isn't my body or my face. Don't worry, I'm still hot. Oh no, no, no. She doesn't actually <laughs> say that. But don't worry, everyone, because that basically is her body and her face. So don't panic. She's not disgusting. Um, she's massively ugly." Oh, she's, she's got, got this really gorgeous birthmark. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, don't look upon me. Oh, what is that? Oh, oh my God. So, so on the don't, one Does hand, he brush her hair away oh from her God, face as Don't well. look at me, you'll turn to stone. <laughs> what? She you are fucking gorgeous. Says, you are fit as fuck. She actually says, I've, I, I've had it my entire life, yeah. so I'm used Nothing to it. Bothered. Yeah, but, but what's weirder? What's weirder? Because within the confines of the character, she is trying to pull her hair 
over it. So yep. she, within the confines of the sure. character, she's embarrassed by this. She pulls her hair over yep. it. He goes over to her. This is their first meeting and pulls it out yeah, of the good way. Lad. Yeah. Good lad. Yeah. Good lad. <laughs> because he's saying to me, <laughs> no one else, to me, you're beautiful. But don't think you could get anyone else because you're disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, you're everything. Oh. But we, we, we learn that she is doing this for revenge. Her father died in an IOI loyalty centre. One of the good ideas about this. Yes, yeah. I feel like that should have been explored more. Yep. This yep. sort of slavery that happens within within the Oasis or outside the Oasis even. But um, yeah, so she's part of a resistance. As Alex said, it's not properly explained. Um, but it's a welcome addition to the movie, the concept, because that's not in the book. <clears throat> I think that is a good idea. And Nolan switches gears a bit here because he blows up Wade's home. Um, <laughs> this is out ki- of the blue. Kills, as Wade weirdly puts it later, his mum's sister. <laughs> this is, I can't believe <laughs> Let's do this now. That is my favourite bad line of all time. You killed my mum's sister. <laughs> what is it? What? A, you fucking hated her. And also that she mum, like, what? Your mum's sister. That's, that's what I agree. She's your because auntie. Say my auntie. Because mum and mum is a, such a trigger word. So by saying yeah. mum's sister, yeah, who it, you made it, it made it makes you think mum. Yeah, so mom. have him kill his mum. But you're right. But the idea, you're right. Because the idea in the in this story is that her death is supposed to motivate Wade. But they've established that he doesn't get on with her. Yeah. And as a byproduct, they've actually killed the guy who beats him up. So he should now be thanking IOI for yeah. doing that almost. It just doesn't work as a motivator. The man that plays is the bad... Finchie. Finchie. Yeah, he was Finchie. It's Finchie. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what? It's Finchie from the office. <laughs> we really can't keep calling him Finchie. I've done it before on the show. He's actually, like, in The Witch, he's really good. He's yeah. like, he is an actor. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds worse. You know what? When I thought about saying that, I should have written his name down. Anyway, Finch is great in this. Uh, I'm at Bombshell. Let's take a break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Bernie Katz was fun. He was kind. When he walked in, the room just lit up. And there was something magical about this young man that just had a glint in his eye, that didn't give a shit about anything, but loved everything. My first impressions were of a huge, vibrant and outgoing personality, all hugs, grins, extravagant language and wild attire. Always in a leopard skin jacket, whirling around like a windmill. I know, she's a character. I don't know if those people exist anymore. They're sort of dying out. Everything's changed. It is a bank holiday weekend in London, the late summer of 2017. The streets around Kentish Town, just north of the city and halfway towards Hampstead Heath, are unusually quiet. That evening, in a small, converted flat, just a 15-minute bus ride from King's Cross Station, Bernie Katz, pocket-sized and long-standing front-of-house manager of London's Groucho Club, is found dead by his landlord. I said to him, what happened, you know, and he said, we are not talking about it. And yes, there have been the rumours, we've all heard. I mean, what did I hear specifically that he was murdered? His relationship with his father was so toxic. He hated the idea that his son was gay. His right. dad was a proper gangster. Bernie came down, there was a car far from. Guy blows his dad's head off. They were all part of the same fetid, seething, self-referential, Nestor Bypath, I think, gradually become. Was Bernie depressive? I think yes. When alone, a condition he rarely sought, he had demons that flew about his head. I get a call from Bernie and he is in £20,000 of the debt with the Albanian gangsters in Soho. We all collected and paid the debt. The way that the Albanians operate is very, very peculiar because they did not operate like any other mafia in Europe. I've never been able to establish exactly what happened and why, but whatever it was, it was so wrong. Bernie, who killed the Prince of Soho? Listen now. A Stack production, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with the second challenge. So the book required players to complete a text adventure game called Zork and then unlock a Voigtkampf machine from Blade Runner, play a game of Black Tiger and no trivia about the very boring rock band Rush, <laughs> which is more interesting on the page uh, than it sounds with me describing it. Um, in the film, this is where they used the war game section earlier in the book, but with a different film. So Ernest Klein explains it thusly. We made a list of 80s films and Stanley Kubrick only made one or two movies in the 80s. When Stephen saw The Shining on our list, he immediately started to geek out about the thought of recreating The Shining. So that was also one of my favourite changes because up until that point, it had been me and Zach, the other screenwriter, geeking out about all of our heroes. That was when we got to see Stephen and cinematographer uh, Zanus Kaminsky geek out about Stanley Kubrick, um, who they both knew and were friends with, but are also just the biggest fanboys of his work. To watch them recreating camera moves and even the film grain was just so much fun for me and everyone else. So they enter the Overlook Hotel and have oh. an experience within The Shining. What did you think of this, Alex? You're making sex oh. noises. So I just got really excited seeing The Overlook again. It's, mm. a, it's a shame because it goes off the, 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 the zombie ball in the golden room or the gold room whatever it's called is, is is not good but before that it's 
such a faithful recreation. The woman in the bath in room 237 is amazing. The elevators of blood. The twins are good. But even it, for me, it was just the tingle I got when they're in the, the big ballroom the, 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 with the typewriter. I was mm. like, it's so well done. And it's the closest we get to a dissenting voice here, which is um, H says he hasn't seen The Shining, he doesn't like horror, so he doesn't know this stuff and he doesn't want to be involved. And I think that's something the movie needs more of, these dissenting voices, because everyone likes all the same stuff in this yeah. film. And it's all too easy, whereas, you know, in real life, we all pick and choose. Did you like The Shining? The bit, yeah, I thought it was amazing, because I'd given up on, like, I'm not going to get told a story. So they go to The Shining just because that's where Halliday went to see a film for no reason other than it's The Shining. It's mm. not like, it doesn't connect. But once I was in there, I was like, wow, that's really good because right. it's so much fun to see. And just uh, the music and all of that. And I really wanted to see Jack, but that's not going to happen. So fine. Um, I'd like, yeah, the zombie stuff. I lost it a bit there. And then being chased through the maze, <clears throat> I wasn't that bothered about that. But just to be in the hotel and understand that anything can happen was really exciting. It's weird. I actually might have preferred it to seeing it in Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel mm. to The Shining. <laughs> I hated it. Oh! I thought it was sacrilegious. I thought it was really unpleasant exploiting someone else's art in a film that feels quite exploitative for its duration. I, I just thought, I thought this is the moment when Spill, if you're going to fuck with a film, fuck with one of your own films. Don't take a dead person's film. Yeah. And this will be the first, the introduction to The Shining that a lot of young people get. And I just feel like it's totally wrong for it to be played for laughs. Um, and I did ask Klein about this. I said, did you have any misgivings about messing with The Shining? And he said, I do not have them. Um, I don't know if Stephen had any. He was so close with Stanley. They used to have fax machines set up devoted to each other where they would send faxes back and forth. I know that Christiane Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick's widow, um, and I also think his daughter came and visited the set and gave their own blessing. I don't think any other filmmaker in the world would have got permission to do it, but I think they knew Stanley would have trusted him. He trusted him with AI and and it's such a loving homage and celebration of it. I don't think anybody could take offence at that. Mm. I did. I really did. I thought this was the moment the film lost me, actually. Mm. I see your logic. I got a bit giddy, though, seeing the overlook. Yeah. No, Even sure. when like, you see Mark Rylance, where Jack Nicholson was in the photograph of the golden gold yeah. bar, or whatever, like, I was like, that's just... If I was Mark Rylance, I'd be like, can I take that home? Even though it's not real. <laughs> like, it just really... It was... I yeah, it's just all those feelings you have for that set. I do. I mean, I think my one... But the part of me that would agree with you is like, who is this for? Like, who's 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 yeah. watching this movie and going, oh, I want to see The Shining recreated? Like, it feels you. like. Well, I oh. mean, well, actually, yeah. I was going to say, I think, I, I think I sort of view this as a, a kids' movie a little bit, and mm. I sort of imagine the people who it's targeted at potentially wouldn't know what the fuck The Shining is. And yeah. it is a weird introduction to it. Mm. Um, if if you're young, it's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. So um, Artemis gets arrested and sent to a loyalty centre and Wade meets H. Yeah. H is a woman. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. Whoa. Oh, I did. They signposted it. <laughs> he meets Dato and he meets Sho, who is an 11-year-old kid. This is his gang. Um, and then we're into the third challenge. We're getting near the end of this one. Um, it, the final challenge is playing Atari on ice. Uh, <laughs> the game you have to play is Adventure, which famously um, had the first designer to hide an Easter egg in a game, which is a nice thing. It, that is that is it's nice, cool but it does seem like they've gone. They've gone. Well, we just can't have the challenges from the book where it's someone just playing a computer game. <laughs> mm, well, we can though at the end. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, to be fair, they put a war around yeah, it, as, as all these films now have to do. You have to have a war at the end. Um, so uh, bef- just before it happens, um, Wade helps Artemis escape and she busies herself taking down a big shield, which is very Star Wars-y. But it was Wade doing that in the book, so I think it's a good to have Artemis doing it here. That's an improvement. I think she's really good in it. Samantha Cook. Uh, Olivia Samantha Cook. Cook. Olivia Olivia Cook. Cook. Her character is called Samantha Cook. Yeah, mm. she should be the hero. It's a bit Trinity and Neo, I think, isn't it? Mm. Where where Trinity should be the hero of the Matrix. Yeah, I mean, he basically murders her to save her, in <laughs> quote marks. And the look on her face, you'd be like, are you... Jo- oh, okay. <laughs> like, I can do this better than you can do it, so please don't murder me. Uh, well, he's meanwhile, he's, bu- he's busy building an army to battle the Sixers. He's leading them all into battle with a big speech that I don't think... Ty Sheridan is capable of it's giving. Not, it's given this speech, there's no one, and then the hordes arrive. And it's like, really? <laughs> like, did I felt, that speech work? I felt like he was less phoning in and more texting it. <laughs> I just think that, again, it's sort of like, it's so silly. The fact that you're in a virtual world and yet the army arrives coming over the brow of a hill, it's yeah. like, why don't they just appear in yeah. front of him? It's mm. like, they, just because that is how cinema has traditionally had armies arriving, you are in a virtual world. There should be something exciting about the way they arrive that yeah. is different. Yeah, agreed. Uh, H activi- activates the Iron Giant, which is a big part of this film that wasn't in the book. This is their replacement for Ultraman. Uh, the Battletoads show up. I can't remember them. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show up. Yeah, I can't oh, remember them. The Battletoads. Yeah, Battletoads uh, is the only game on the Super Nintendo that I've ever literally gone, this is unfucking believable It's the hardest game I have ever played. That's Battletoads. <laughs> Turtles show up. Chun-Li shows up. Chucky shows up. Uh, well, well done. The the that is brilliant. You're a PG thirteen. You get one f bomb yes, in your movie. It works your f bomb is going to be it's fucking Chucky. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, but the problem, I guess, with this sequence is it's been established that no one can die uh, in the Oasis. So. Uh, in the book, there's a subplot about Dato, um, his real identity being sussed out by the IOI, uh, leading to them murdering him in the real world. And so it felt like the stakes were much higher in this sequence, but it all just kind of happens in front of you. Nolan turns into Mechagodzilla. Oh, that's good, though. Takes down the Iron Giant. Yeah, but Nolan turning into Mechagodzilla and the Toho Studios destroy all monsters music, mm-hmm. Godzilla music, his theme playing is fucking great. I mean, it's this great. Is, see, this, it's, is, this, it, is what, this is what happens to me. But it's okay. great. But no, but it's great if you know the reference. If you don't, what are you watching? It's tough. Um, mm. It's a tough sell. Daito becomes Gundam. I don't really know much about Gundam apart from what I read on Wikipedia a few years ago. Again, I didn't know that reference. That meant nothing to me. Um, it looks kind of like the Avengers finale. I thought so visually, but but those big moments work in the Avengers because we're equally invested in all those characters. Well, we're here. Are, it's all yeah. based on who you recognise and who you don't, yeah. and you don't know who's behind them. So you just can't get emotionally wrapped up in this finale. I don't think in the way that obviously you could True. in Endgame. Yeah, so I literally wrote. Uh, I literally wrote. It's like the portal scene with none of the emotion. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Um, so Sorrento blows the place to smithereens, kills all their avatars, but Parzival survives thanks to the extra life coin he was given by the curator. I feel like I've seen that somewhere before and I can't remember where it was. Never mind. That's a, that's a, a podcast cul-de-sac, Alex. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I realised that. Down. I realised that. Hey, um, I, can I, I want to know why on <clears throat> earth you these haptic suits that uh, they wear, which you can get in real life, by the way, Tesla suits they call, no relation to the company Tesla, but like they have them now. Okay. Um, I get it why you'd want them for sexy time. Mm. Why have people got them turned on 
for in war. a fight. <laughs> like, why do you want to feel when a bullet hits you in the chest? Yes, it right. seems insane, especially when this war is actually a war with consequences. It's not just a bit of fun. Yeah, if you're tough, you'd do it. I did a forward roll in the last episode. <laughs> and so now the world is watching and Parzival's narrating for some reason everything he's doing. Yeah. Um, and he finds the creator's name and he succeeds. So he's asked to sign papers to become the sole proprietor of the Oasis. But like the moment Halliday made Morrow sign over his shares in Gregarious, this turns out to be a test. But he does then sign a contract. <laughs> so I didn't get that. I was like, oh, it's a test because you're not going to... I thought the the thing was be oh we'll all own the I will not sign this contract because everybody owns the Oasis and then the fi- the few final scenes of the film they're like could you just sign this contract quickly and he's like yeah definitely <laughs> yeah it's I think it's quite me- it gets quite messy here in these last couple of scenes also but- I think they're struggling for a climax yes. because the well, at some point Parsifal's got a key. And the climax is he can't get a key in a lock. It's bizarre. Because he's being jiggled around a bit. And so you can see where the director's tried to like buffer the scene by cutting away to crowds going, come on, you can do it. And it's like, yeah. you can get the key in the virtual lock. Getting a key in a lock isn't exactly opening the Ark of the Covenant, is it? It's, it's a step down for Big Steve here. Um, we, we end up in Halliday's childhood bedroom and he shows him a button that will erase the Oasis entirely. Did you think the young Halliday looked like he was kidnapped and there under duress I genuinely the bit where he leads him out of the room yeah. after the contract's been signed is fucking creepy it's like <laughs> yeah. you really like it's just I know it's the younger version of you and it's creepy yeah it doesn't look like he should yeah he doesn't look like he knows where he is no he gives a speech Halliday <laughs> <laughs> about reality being real and, and, and then he gives he gives him an egg and he, I didn't know what was happening there's some crying yeah. I, I didn't understand a, the I egg I couldn't believe it was an actual egg <laughs> <laughs> And they sort of made a literal egg. And it feels like this is the moment they should be discussing whether or not someone should morally yes. be in charge of all this. Yeah. Um, it, sh- it feels like that should be at the heart of this story. And it gets sorted, kind of, because um, Wade gives it to his gang. Yeah. His multicultural gang. So there's five people in charge. But also, you feel like, well, is he not going to give it over to the world? That's like, wouldn't I the ending would be that yeah. this is everyone's It's too now. much for one person. Yeah. Yes. But it, it never really it never really gets addressed. Um, I mean, it's a real problem. This this whole thing, the, the end narration where Wade is basically going, you know, we made a decision that wasn't that popular. Uh, you know, we closed the Oasis on Tuesdays and Thursdays because people need to spend more time in reality. And you're like, you're saying that over images of you and your team lounging around a brand new penthouse flat <laughs> yeah. that you have got. I mean, fucking hell. Well, what about the people who are still in the stacks who yeah. are using it to escape from their shitty lives in the stacks? And you're there going, <laughs> we're having fun. We've closed it, by it's, the way. It's the, it's the, it's the problematic Back to the Future ending because that's been criticised for celebrating 80s consumerism and materialism with him being happy because he's got his truck and they've got a big house. And and Wade does seem pretty smug about his 1980s loft apartment. Mm. So, yeah, the fact that there's no mention of him doing anything to help people in the real world, apart from shutting it down two days a week. And it, we're told, forcing people, forcing people to endure their shitty lives. We're told the economy depends on the oasis. So won't shutting it down a couple of days a week destroy livelihoods? Mm. It just, I f- it really feels like something that's been tacked on to sort of take the moral high ground at the end mm. without actually solving any problems. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, the idea is that, you know, it's such a brilliant act of closing it for two days that that they they are champions of the world. And you're like, but no, that doesn't work at all on any level. 
And let me give you the final line of the book. So the last line in the novel, uh, Wade says, it occurred to me then that for the first time in a long time, I had absolutely no desire to log back into the Oasis. Because he's getting off with that girl. Yeah, but it's a diff- it's a different message. It's saying let's all live in the real world, yes. and and it's just it, it, that's a better ending than whatever this Enforcing is. Forcing your way of life on other people, <laughs> right? So that's all I got. Should we do the Should we do the bits? Sure. Sure. Okay, Vicky. What was your favourite scene? Uh, the Shining, <laughs> because it was silly and amazing and pointless and really beautiful. So fine. I wish I could say it was The Shining because it, it does look amazing. It's if not, it was though, The Goonies, it? it ain't, no. no. What's yours, Alex? It's not, I can tell it's not. Um, <laughs> mine is the race at the start uh, for the first key. It's just incredible. Okay. Uh, mine's kind of that. Uh, mine's the moment the DeLorean appears. That's good. It got me excited. <laughs> uh, See, it does have an effect on you. That's what I'm saying. These little re- references, like, you know, you can't help but go, no. <laughs> I did. But a great movie that does not make. <clears throat> Alex, what is your MVW? TJ Miller as iRock, please. <laughs> He's so good in this. Uh, Vicky. I nearly had TJ Miller as iRock because, like, thank God. Uh, then for then him. you read the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, Olivia Cook as Artemis slash Sam, mm. very underserved by having to hand the action over to her boyfriend. And Steven Spielberg sticking to this thing of like one boy can save the world, and that's that. But also her avatar, like I don't like. How was it? Was were the actors involved in the um, the recreation of their avatars, or is it completely CGI? No, because, it's motion captured. Because the whole thing's motion captured. Her avatar, she's brilliant as that as well. Yeah. Like I think she's yeah. really, really good. She's, I think she's very good anyway. Like I just, what's the sound of metal? She's in that. She's yeah. fucking brilliant in mm, that. Yeah, like, she's good in it. Thoroughbreds. You see thoroughbreds. She's, she's, she's just a brilliant it. actress. Yeah. So yeah, she's fantastic. I, uh, her. All right, don't be annoyed with my one. My one is uh, a trailer for this movie. It's called the Dreamer oh. Trailer, or more specifically, there's an orchestral version of Take On Me by AHA used in the Dreamer Trailer, which got me so excited for this film. And it's the best thing about all of this. And I can't believe it's not in the bloody film. I can't <laughs> believe it was used in the trailer. It got everyone excited. And yeah, that is it. The orchestral version of Take On Me that's not in the movie is my favourite bit of this film. <laughs> it is whatever. It's called Most Valuable Whatever. And, and you know if I picked that, there'd be problems. Oh, I'd go apeshit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, Alex, let's mm-hmm. come to you. Uh, yep. What would you change? Uh, okay, so I change. There's a bit. Well, first of all, very quickly, uh, don't brush someone's hair away from their birthmark without asking, especially when they've just tried to cover their birthmark with their hair. It's weird. You, you, you shouldn't do that. But more importantly, there's a bit at the end where Sorrento is going to kill uh, Parcival Wade, and he opens the van doors, and then he sees that Wade has the final Easter egg. He's just been given it by Halliday, and he can't do it. He can't pull the trigger and he's kind of caught up in the moment and like this childlike wonder and this love of everything that the Oasis stood for and Halliday comes pouring out of one expression on apparently not very good Ben Mendelssohn's face. Wrong. He's very good. <laughs> and the thing is, that is a really nice moment that feels completely like out of nowhere. Like that is not set up with his character throughout. I think what would be great is if you saw him earlier on, because even in the flashbacks and uh, in the Hall of Memories or whatever, you know, he's still very corporate from the off, like trying to monetize the Oasis. But if you saw him gradually lose his way into the corporate world, mm. I think it would really fit with this like theme of the film about this love of pop culture and then that pop culture being monetized and that being an ugly thing. And if he'd sort of 
been a really sort of like, you know, geeking out about it and then gradually become a corporate stooge as yeah. it went on would have been great. Yeah, and it's all there. The the ability to sow the seeds are there when you see him as the intern. Mm. It's, yeah. Yeah, good one, Vicky. Well, this actually links to your change. So you compress the characters of Sorrento and Simon Pegg's character, what's he called? Morrow. Mm. So it's really obvious. So it's it's all in front of you. So Halliday mm. and Morrow fell out very badly because of the wife. Um, and now Simon Pegg wants to rule the world to get revenge on his business partner that wronged him or whatever. And then he learns the error of his ways because of Parsifal and his gang of friends. And he like reconnects with that side of himself when Halliday and Morrow were friends and doing it for all the right reasons. Because the beats are there. Because when Ben Mendelssohn does completely soften at the end, when he sees Parsifal holding a fucking egg Mm-mm. and he's like, oh, I never meant to do any of this. You can then make him be Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg goes to prison for a little while for the bad things he did. But then he's ultimately released because he doesn't do anything too bad. And you still get the same end of the film where Simon Pegg is going to help the kids run the Oasis. Yeah. It's That's really basic to me. Like what you've got, these two men orbiting around the character of Halliday. You only need one baddie and you don't need Halliday to have this ally who doesn't really do anything. No. And that's my change because um, it's in the book, the Halliday Morrow friendship breakup was genuinely compelling. It felt like it was the heart and the soul of the story. It really resonated emotionally and it's reduced to nothing here. Yeah. It's reduced to a couple of sentences. So you properly utilize that storyline. And as you say, then collapse those two characters and you, Bob's your uncle. And the last thing is when Ben Mendelssohn is in the back of a police car with his his hench person finale or whatever she's called and she punches him in the face. I was like, mm. are you kidding me? Mm. Like that is so silly and so weirdly violent to punch someone in the face in a content space like a car. And it just made, it's just daft. And, and I hate to be like a non logic person, but he's just been handcuffed and put in that car. She's been handcuffed and put in that car, but she, oh, she's not got handcuffs on now so she can punch him. <laughs> That's the only reason she's not wearing handcuffs. Yeah. It's a stupid moment. Yeah. She's, she's a, Pointless. He's a shitty character. Yeah. Okay, that's all I got. She's not in the book either, finale. Is she not? No, I can't remember. No, she was created for the film. All right, I'm I, done. I quite, I quite liked her character. Thought she was good. I quite, quite like the name finale. Quite fit. Right. Shall we? Shall we do a verdict? That I feel like I know where this is going, but. Well, I mean, you say that because you think everyone's going to go your way. But actually, let's do the verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! Who's going first? Oh, I picked them. So, oh, God. Well, then we do know which way it's going. (laughs) Because I go last. I might mix that up. All right, Victoria. No, Chris, fuck it. Let's do you first. Get this out of the way. Well, uh, all right. Willy Wonka, then. You spot it, Alex. No, go on. No, I mean, it's Willy Wonka. Ready Player One. I dreamed of Ready Player One when I was a kid, I feel like. And that finished product, and it does feel like a product, actually made me hate myself, <laughs> uh, which I'm pretty sure they weren't going for. It, it, wow. made, my, it made me hate my love of pop culture. you picking the marketing meetings? I'm like, this is that, our goal. Stick that on the poster. <laughs> this movie made me hate myself. <laughs> Uh, I think the messages at the heart of, of both the movies are a right old mess and I don't love Willy Wonka either but it's managed to stand the test of time and that is because in my opinion of Gene Wilder so because of that one wild performance I'm going for Willy Wonka yeah <sighs> I'm going to jump in here okay just I mean I don't know whether I fully believe what I'm about to this say this is going to be Wait. idiotic this is going to be idiotic <laughs> No, I'll tell you what I wrote. Strap yourselves in, folks. (laughs) How's he gonna get? How's he gonna get to this verdict? I can't wait. Uh, Fuck off. Uh, Right, 
no, V, you go. Are you sure? Yeah. Then, all right, fine. Do uh, it. He bottled it. Okay, super quick. I bottled it. Super quick. Um, watching Ready Player One is like eating four bags of Haribo, which I have done. Ultimately, you, it's what you thought want. You, so I thought you ate So you were thinking, what? Wait, watching Ready Player One is like watching Willy Wonka. No, it's like eating. It's like literally. But you eating. eat four bags of Haribo watching Willy Wonka. Because <laughs> it's not that confusing. <laughs> it is. Um, and so it's what you want and it's sweet and it hits all those and it makes you feel like it hits all those points and makes you feel incredible and it's incredibly unsatisfying and unnutritious and there's nothing to it and then you feel sick afterwards and you hate yourself a little bit <laughs> because you've what's gorged what's wrong with you people on fucking flumps and tang fastics until you're lying in a puddle on the floor groaning vomiting white vomiting. chocolate mice yeah, yeah. I'm gonna love white chocolate mice pulling a fucking whitey so because Willy Wonka makes me feel those feelings, but ultimately has the grounding of a nutritious, delicious, moral arc of some sort. And Gene Wilder is incredible. Willy Wonka, obviously. Oh, well, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is the winner this week. Awesome. What are we doing next week? I was just going to say, <laughs> this was a lot closer for me than it was for either of you. I genuinely think Ready Player One is a lot of fun. That race at the start is absolutely incredible. I get a little bit of a buzz from every pop culture reference that I spot in it, and it's nice, and I like it, and it's, you know... Yes, it's superficial and it's nonsense and it doesn't add up to much and the story is bollocks, but it's all very distracting bollocks. Lots going on all the time. It's very colourful. I do like bright colours. <laughs> so I think it's quite close. Uh, but Willy Wonka, yeah, Gene Wilder is amazing. And the, in the end, I just went for the one that feels like it actually has more heart. And I can't believe I'm saying this because it's a movie that was born out of Quaker Oats <laughs> wanting to market a chocolate bar. <laughs> And yet it still feels like the more authentic yeah. cinema experience made with love, which it wasn't. But yeah, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is the winner. It's three for three. I, I thought you were going to go for Ready Player One. I was going to go change for it. Ready. No, look, here. Do you want to check my notes? Yeah, I do. I do. Willy Wonka. Verdict. No, you know what this means? Though? So we're doing the Steven Spielberg thing and his films haven't uh, won. He'll win next week. Yeah, he'll win next week. Yeah, it's correct. Thank you. <laughs> I did go Willy Wonka. There you go. Right then... Chris, what's going on next week? We are doing Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, that's right. Our Indiana Mania season begins. And I think, Vicky, you've got Raiders. Am I right in yes. saying that? And, and Alex, you've got Temple. Temple of Doom. Looking forward to it. I'm really excited. About which one? Both? All of it. Oh, don't All spoil it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but seriously, that is us done for this week. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Thank you for listening. Congratulations, Willy Wonka. Back on Monday, talking Raiders of the Lost Ark. Bye-bye. This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> got, got choked up. <laughs> Did you swallow a fly like Belloc? <laughs> so weird. <laughs>